0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and if there's one thing I know, it's that I don't know what I don't know. Uh, Are you still with me? My guest today would argue, though, that I must... Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist and professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. His research focuses on generosity, motivation, and meaningful work. And I imagine that there are a few senior managers who don't have at least one of his New York Times best-selling books on their shelves. Adam, welcome to This Working Life, not to be mistaken with Your Pod. Work life.
0: Thank you, Lisa. I'm thrilled to be here, and I love your taste in podcast titles. I
1: know. It's like I'm the Aussie-Asian you, or did that just get a bit creepy too quickly?
0: <laughs> no, no. I, I'm honored to be in that company. Bring it on.
1: So the premise of your new book, Think Again, is knowing what we don't know is wisdom, which I love, but what do you actually mean by that?
0: I mean that we live in a world that rewards certainty and confidence and conviction, when we'd be much better off full of curiosity and doubt and flexibility. I guess the the place I would start, Lisa, is we all have things we're ignorant about and we should be keenly aware of what those things are.
1: Don't you think we know the big areas of what we don't know, but actually when it's coming maybe to your area of expertise, Adam Grant, like work life, isn't it harder to pinpoint what we don't know in our areas of expertise?
0: I think it's easier and harder. It's easier because we have usually better judgment and taste in our own areas of expertise. And so we know what sources to look up, what, you know, what kinds of data are credible, and that makes it a lot easier. The harder part is we're all vulnerable to what psychologists call cognitive entrenchment, which is when you start to take for granted assumptions that need to be questioned, and sometimes you don't even know you're doing it. So there's, there's a great study that illustrates this of bridge players, where if you take expert bridge players and you change the rules a little bit, they actually play worse than less experienced players because they're they're stuck to the strategies that have worked for them in the old version of the game and they don't even realize they need to rethink those. You can see this with accountants too, that if you take highly experienced accountants, they're actually slower to adapt to new tax laws than more novice accountants. And so I do think there's a there's a danger in expertise that you can become an expert for a world that doesn't exist anymore.
1: Oh, I love that. And is this what you mean by the phrase seizing and freezing?
0: Yeah, this this is another favorite term (laughs) from psychology. Seizing and freezing is when you get attached to an area of knowledge or an opinion that you have and you cling to it because it gives you the comfort of conviction. And you freeze it so that you don't have to deal with the discomfort of doubt.
1: And can we make it absolutely clear, why should we um, think again? Like, what is the problem here with becoming baked in our ways?
0: Well, if the world was stable, Lisa, we could define intelligence just as the ability to think and learn, and you'd be fine. But we live in a rapidly changing world, right? If there's anything that a pandemic has taught us, it's that not only is change a constant, it's actually accelerating, And when the world is changing, you need to be every bit as good at rethinking and unlearning as you are thinking and learning. Um, We know that, you know, if the world around you changes and you basically stand still, then the world is going to leave you behind. And I think that, you know, for a lot of people, this past year has forced them to do a lot of rethinking. And my hope is that in 2021 and beyond, that we'll do our rethinking more deliberately and more proactively. Um, To give you a concrete example of this... 2018, in the winter, uh, so this is three years ago, I went to a bunch of the most powerful CEOs in Silicon Valley. And I said, I'd love to do a remote Friday experiment. Let's just give people one day a week to work from anywhere and we can track the impact on productivity and creativity. Uh And I had evidence that as long as people are in the office together at least half the week, there was no cost to job performance. It actually was higher on average. Um, Satisfaction was higher too. People didn't experience any detriments at all to their working relationships as long as they were in the same room for half the week. And yet, all of those CEOs said,
1: no, thanks. (laughs) It can never be done.
0: (laughs) Uh, I mean, they they had a whole list of objections, right? And what's hilarious to me, Lisa, is that at least three of these CEOs now have announced that their workforce may be permanently remote. Mm. and. That is such a missed opportunity for me because they could have spent all of 2018 and 2019 learning how to make remote work work. And now they're having to play catch up as opposed to actually running that experiment and learning from it. And so I think that that being willing to run experiments is what it means to be a rethinker, to say, you know what, (laughs) just because this is the way we've always done it doesn't mean it's the most effective way to do it
1: something is stopping us from thinking again. And I was really intrigued by a finding in some of your experiments suggesting that, in fact, the smarter you are, the more you might struggle to update your beliefs. Why is that?
0: Uh, this is such a weird <laughs> and, and puzzling <laughs> phenomenon. I yeah. think the, the evidence that I've read on this suggests that if you're highly intelligent uh, and you're looking at data that contradict your, your, either your preferences or your beliefs, then you can use your smarts to convince yourself that there's a pattern that supports what you want to believe. Wow. And there's a bias that I, I think captures this nicely. I, I like to think of it as the I'm not bias bias. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you've seen it, right? You can, you can look at other people and immediately spot the places where they're not neutral and the flaws in their thinking. But no, not me. I'm objective. Right. I'm, I'm immune to all those biases. Oh, this... And it turns out that smart people are more likely to fall victim to the I'm not biased bias. And so they're less likely to, to check themselves and catch the errors in their own thinking.
1: Adam, tell me about the preachers, prosecutors and politicians theory. Uh,
0: my colleague, Phil Tetlock, wrote this brilliant paper about how we make a lot of decisions and we form too many opinions thinking like preachers, prosecutors and politicians. And I I just thought this was so clever. And I I think it's it's really worth understanding because when you're thinking like a preacher, you believe that you already have found the truth and your job is to spread it or proselytize it to everyone else. When you're thinking like a prosecutor, your job is to win your case and prove everyone else wrong. (laughs) And if you stop there, if you're preaching and prosecuting, you are not going to think again because you already know you're right and everybody else is wrong. And they're the ones who need to change. And then in a politician mindset, you're trying to win the approval of your audience. So you might tell them what they want to hear, but you're probably not changing your own opinions. And I I just, I find this so interesting because I'm an organizational psychologist. I have never been a preacher or a prosecutor or a politician. And yet these occupations, these ways of thinking, they manage to sneak into my brain in situations where I really wish they wouldn't. And I think for me, the first step is to recognize them.
1: Actually, Adam, can you share the story of when you had a really big prosecuting moment when you were presenting? I think it was to a board.
0: Oh, I was present, Yeah, I was presenting to a bank that had asked me to help them figure out how to solve some of their problems with attracting and retaining uh, employees. And I had 20, 26 data-driven recommendations from surveys, interviews, randomized controlled experiments, observation And in the middle of my presentation, one of the senior executives interrupted and he said, well, uh, why don't we just pay them more? And if there was one thing that was not in my list of recommendations, it was pay because these people were already well paid, by which I mean overpaid. I said, you know, I'm pretty sure, you know, throwing money at the problem would have solved it, you know, or if throwing money at the problem would solve it. It already would have. And he said, well, you know, that's not what my experience has shown. I'm like, yes, that's why I brought you rigorous evidence so that I could learn from the best data as opposed to your idiosyncratic experience. (laughs) And he just kept pushing back. And finally, I said, I've never seen a group of smart people act so dumb. (gasps) You said that. Yeah, I'm not proud of it. It was not one of my better moments.
1: How did they react to that? (laughs)
0: They actually started laughing. (laughs) uh, I actually got feedback later from one of the more junior people in the room who said, you know what? Our executives really respect people who tell them the truth. Uh, But, you know, it it obviously was not how I wanted to communicate. And, you know, I've sometimes been called a logic bully (laughs) because I just like to hammer people with facts and reasons. And it was a moment where I had kind of descended into playground bully mode. And I decided I didn't want to be that person anymore. And all the time I spent thinking like a scientist, I wanted to learn how to talk like one too.
1: What would you have done differently, Adam?
0: Well, I think being in scientist mindset is, it's not about wearing a white coat or even owning a microscope or a telescope. It's about valuing humility and curiosity and flexibility. And that means you know what you don't know. You doubt some of the things you think you know, and you're curious to discover things you don't know. And... I think, you know, in that situation, what I what I should have done is I should have said, you know, it's so interesting that you don't buy my data. If you don't believe the kind of evidence that I bring to the table, why in the world did you hire me? Why am I here? I don't understand. Tell me more. And what what I should have asked him was what evidence would change your mind so that we could align on the standards of data that, that he finds credible. And then I could try to bring him you know, some information that he might actually be willing to consider.
1: Can we talk about the importance of being wrong, Adam?
0: <laughs> we can.
1: Why is it so important to be wrong? I think it's
0: important because, as, as Danny Kahneman put it to me, and he should know because he won a Nobel Prize for his work on decision making, he said, discovering that I was wrong is the only way that I know I've learned something. Right? If, if you just go around affirming your beliefs then you're not actually making any progress right you want to challenge your beliefs in order to to know for sure that you've you've made a discovery and D- danny made an interesting distinction i said oh okay so what we want is we want people to take joy in being wrong because if you can do that then you'll be less defensive less threatened less likely to go on the attack and more likely to open your mind to those new discoveries and danny said well mm, not exactly i don't enjoy being wrong I enjoy discovering that I was wrong, that I was wrong in the past, because that means I am now less wrong than I was before.
1: You're listening to This Working Life on Radio National. I'm Lisa Leong. And some of you might rightfully be a bit confused right now because I have the host of Work Life, Adam Grant, on the other side of the desk right now. Adam, you're right that imposter syndrome could actually be a good thing how uh,
0: when we talk about imposter syndrome we talk about it as if, as if it's a chronic disease and for some people it is debilitating right they walk around with a sense that i'm a fraud everyone is going to find out that i'm completely incompetent and i haven't earned any of my achievements but what's much more common is just basic imposter thoughts those everyday doubts in your head like what if, what if i'm not fully prepared today what if i've lost a step from yesterday what if this new project that I've been asked to tackle is, is actually outside of my skill set? And we had a doctoral student, Basima Tufik, who's now an MIT professor. Basima studied medical professionals and investment professionals. And she found that having those imposter thoughts more often had no negative consequences for performance. It actually had some surprising benefits. That as an investment professional, when you feel like an imposter, you are more likely to question yourself and that means seeking out new knowledge and learning something, and you can make better decisions as a result. As a medical professional, you're more likely to second guess a diagnosis you've made and double check it with others, and that can improve your decision making as well as lead you to actually listen to your patients because you know you can learn something from every person you meet. And I do I do think a caveat is in order here, which is um, in the data, men had an easier time being motivated by imposter syndrome as fuel and saying, all right, I, you know, I, I may not know what I'm doing. Let me go and learn. And women were a little bit more likely to hesitate when they felt those, those thoughts.
1: Now, I'm interested in how we then work as a collective, and you handle that in the book as well, because, you know, we've, we've now just done all of this work on our good selves, Adam and Lisa, uh, and we're feeling, you know, like, okay, we, we accept that we need to rethink and we're being scientists in the world. When is conflict constructive? Let's go there.
0: All right. We might have to disagree about this in the spirit of the topic. <laughs> but
1: I'm not good at disagreeing, by the way. Me neither. Um, I'm a work in progress. Put it <laughs> this is
0: going to be fun then. Yeah. Uh, so I'll say as as a pretty agreeable person, uh, I think of, you know, agreeable people as warm, friendly, polite, Canadian. Uh, <laughs> d- 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 disagreeable we love people.
1: our Canadian listeners, FYI. <laughs>
0: Uh, you know, it's it's obviously like all personality traits, it's a spectrum, and on the more disagreeable side, people tend to be more critical, skeptical, challenging, and also overrepresented among lawyers and engineers. Mm. And I, um, you know, as somebody who's agreeable, I've, I've often avoided conflict because I don't want to hurt people's feelings. I want to be liked. It, harmony is comfortable for me. And then I learned there's this distinction between task conflict and relationship conflict, where... When I shy away from conflict, I'm worried about relationship conflict. It's the personal, emotional, I don't like you. Uh, And it's usually a clash of values or, or personality traits. But there's this other kind of conflict called task conflict, which is when we disagree about ideas or visions or strategies or decisions. And that's important because, as some researchers put it eloquently, the absence of conflict is not harmony. It's apathy. If we never disagree, it means we don't care enough to surface dissenting views and differences of opinion, which, which is part of how we learn from each other. And so I think the key to effective conflict management is not to reduce the amount of conflict you have, it's to have healthy task conflicts without it spilling over into relationship conflict.
1: I like the um, technique of motivational interviewing. Can you talk us through that?
0: Sure. So w- this is this has been one of the most powerful frame shifts for me. It's a technique that was... I don't know if it should be, if the right term is invented or discovered or stumbled into. uh, When two psychologists uh, met up in Australia, they had been treating uh, people with addictions. And they saw a lot of ineffective preaching and prosecuting. You're a bad person for drinking. You need to be sober. And it didn't lead to any change. And eventually they said, well, what what if instead of trying to force people to change... We help them discover their own motivation for change. Mm. let's let's guide them to find their own reasons for why they might want to. and they they developed this philosophy. It's a, a series of of skills and techniques, um, but it's also just a, a way of being called motivational interviewing where you put on your scientist' hat and you actually interview the person to try to understand what you know how they arrived at the position they're in and what would lead them to consider changing. And that means you have to be humble and curious because you don't know why they're where they are and you're really excited to find out what would lead them to shift. And so I've found myself applying this to all kinds of conversations from you know my friend who's resistant to getting a COVID vaccine to um, the, the people in my life that I think are a little bit prejudiced. Um, and what I've, what I've often found most useful is just to come in and say, look, I'm not here to change your mind. I'm here to better understand your thinking. And so, you know, I'd love to find out, are there situations where you would consider this vaccine? How do you think about weighing the pros and cons? And then you'll hear some of what's called sustained talk, which is, you know, a set of reasons for staying the course. But they'll also give you some change talk where they say, well, you know, if there were a near 100% fatality rate and we had lots of data on, you know, the side effects, maybe, you know, I I would take it then. And then I'd say, okay, well, you know, tell me a little bit more. What side effects are you concerned about? Um, and what's a level of of you know of mortality that you would consider really dangerous? And through that that exploration, I interview them. I understand their concerns better and their motivations better, and I can just ask them questions to find out if they're ever open to changing.
1: Yeah, and it's 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 nice because it's aligned to that value of curiosity.
0: It is, and I think the part of the fun of being curious there is I, I, one of one of my favorite moments. This was uh, about. Two months ago, uh, I was I was talking with this friend, and I said, "All right, you know, just just curious, what are the odds that you would get a COVID vaccine?" And he said, "Going to be pretty low." And the old me, the prosecutor me, the logic bully me, would have been frustrated and and would have said, "Yeah, look, I know I know we don't know the you know the long term risks of an mRNA vaccine. We also don't know the long term risks of getting COVID." And we know that COVID has killed a lot of people. You know, how can you not see this? But I've learned this motivational interviewing technique. I'm trying to think and talk more like a scientist. And so when he says the odds are pretty low, I am fascinated. Like, whoa, wait a minute, what? I'm really surprised. (laughs) I would have thought you would have said zero. Why, Why isn't it lower? And that's me being genuinely curious in that moment. (laughs) What led him to say pretty low as opposed to I will never get a vaccine? And he started to explain the things that would motivate him to get one and, you know, admitted that there was a non-zero probability and that was progress for him. But more importantly, Lisa, it was progress for me because I became open to a different way of having this conversation where instead of judging him, instead of, you know, kind of preaching my beliefs. Uh, I, was, I was actually there to try to understand him better and to learn rather than to win.
1: Now, Adam, um, we did talk about agreeable people, but I want to pick up a point. You write that disagreeable people actually play an important role at work. Why is that?
0: Well, I think we all know the value of having a support network. Your support network is the group of people who encourage you and kind of build you up when you're discouraged. And agreeable people are great at that. They're cheerleaders. We also need, though, a challenge network, which is a group of people that we trust to see some of the flaws in our thinking and to get us to do some rethinking. And disagreeable people are not only more motivated to do that, they're also more effective at doing it because they don't mind the conflict. They're not as worried about hurting our feelings. And they will tell us the things we don't want to hear but actually need to hear knowing that you know what if it you know it's a little a little bit uncomfortable in the short run it's going to be helpful in the long run and so one of the things that i've i've done lately lisa is i've gone to some of my most, my most thoughtful critics and i've said hey you may not know this but i consider you a founding member of my challenge network and that has been it's been a great conversation first what i'm sorry what what's the challenge network and then <laughs> and, you know the people who push me to to make my work better and to to keep striving for, for higher levels of excellence and also to maintain integrity and humility and generosity and these values that are important to me. And several of them uh, have now given me much more constructive criticism than before. And I think what happened is, I actually said to, to a couple of them, I said, I know I haven't always been receptive to your feedback. Sometimes I've gotten defensive, but I've always valued it. And I know that you are here to help me get better. And so don't ever worry about hurting my feelings. The only way you can hurt my feelings is by not telling me the truth.
1: So what can we do to encourage those around us at work to think again?
0: I think that one of the best ways to encourage other people to think again is to do some of your own rethinking out loud and role model it. I, I, just, I just finished some experiments with a doctoral student, Konstantinos Kudofaris, where we tried to get managers to create that psychological safety for people to rethink their own decisions, but also to invite managers to do some rethinking. (laughs) And what most managers do is they just, they ask for feedback. They say, hey, if you see something I should do differently, let me know. Uh, If you have any criticism, my door is open. And we found that that only temporarily builds psychological safety uh, because people still worry, maybe there's some issues I can't raise. Or they do speak up and the manager is defensive or lacks control to do anything about it, or is too busy. And we found that a different approach instead of asking for feedback and criticism was more effective. We randomly assigned some managers to actually criticize themselves out loud. And some of the managers just shared their performance reviews and they said, look, here are some things that I need to rethink based on the feedback that I've gotten. And we found that that increased psychological safety for at least a year. Because not only were they opening the door, they were showing they could take it. Right? When they criticized themselves out loud, they said, you know what, I'm not afraid of criticism. I am perfectly willing to admit my flaws, and I would love all of your help in, you know, in helping me continue to evolve and improve, because I'm just a work in progress. And we found that afterward that employees were willing to rethink their own approaches uh, to dealing with their weaknesses and their development areas and say, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to grow as opposed to a threat to my ego and image.
1: And what are the simple things that we can do at work to find out what we don't know?
0: I think the first thing that I would do is I would just try to increase your ratio of questions to answers. I think, you know, too many of us work in organizations that reward people for knowing, and yet the best route to learning is is asking. And so I think increasing inquiry um, and reducing advocacy seems like a decent first step. And then I guess the second and third things that I would do are, secondly, you know, get outside of your bubble. Um, That doesn't just mean having your core challenge network. It also means on social media. Don't just follow people because you think their conclusions are right. Follow them because you respect the integrity of their thought process. Uh, Don't just follow people because you buy into what they think. Follow them because you're intrigued by how they think and how they make you rethink that'll expose you to a broader variety of perspectives. And I guess that goes to my third point, which is I think we need to recognize that dissenting views can improve problem-solving, decision-making, and creativity, even when they are incorrect, because they force us to rethink our criteria and question our judgments. And that's good for the quality of our thought process, even if it's not pointing us in the right direction.
1: Adam Grant, and Adam's book is called Think again. Thanks for your company today. Join me again next week as we hear how to turn imposter syndrome into a strength. This Working Life is produced by truth teller Maria Tickle, who's definitely part of my challenge circle. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next week, keep working.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.